to include tactical and force layer training programs within the department and serve as the department's expert in use of force. Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. Just want to say thank you to everyone who continues to support and subscribe to this podcast. If you guys are enjoying the content we've got going on here, please just take two minutes out of your day to spread this message to a friend and please leave us a review. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Captain Myro Knapp. Myro is a 26-year veteran of one of the largest police agencies in South Florida. He's currently assigned as a captain of the Warrants Bureau. Previous assignments include being assigned as the Training Bureau Captain, Kendall District Captain, North District Captain, Commander of the Robbery Intervention Detail, Platoon Commander of the Port of Miami, Sergeant in the Tactical Narcotics Team, and a full-time Special Response Team member. He's been assigned to the Department's Training Bureau in every rank, where he supervised and oversaw all in-service and advanced departmental training matters. As both a lieutenant and sergeant, he oversaw the department's taser, defensive tactics, and firearms programs. In this episode, Meyer talks about his experience of teaching within law enforcement, his approach to training and how he breaks down his training cycles. Meyer was a certified defensive tactics instructor, advanced firearms and submachine gun instructor, rappel master instructor, and close quarter battle instructor. Meyer has also served as a member of the Training Advisory Board for multiple police product manufacturers. How he sets up training scenarios to achieve a specific training response, the challenge of time and funding on officer training, and the key lessons he has learned over his career. Good afternoon, Mario, and welcome to the podcast, bud. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. No problem, bud. And shout out to Kelly Kennedy for putting us in touch with each other. Yeah, she's good, and it was her birthday yesterday. Oh, well, Kelly, if you're listening, happy birthday. So, uh, Mario, obviously, I mean, you've had the chance to chat a little bit off air and, you know, hear a little bit about your story and that. But for anyone who hasn't uh, come across you and uh, know about your background, can you just tell us about, you know, where you started off in your career and where you're currently at? Okay, I'm uh, currently a captain for the Miami-Dade Police Department uh, Warrants Bureau. Um, I started back in 94. I've been for the same agency for 26 years. Um, I started out in a Midwest district, which is just a you know regular district here in, a, in Dade County. From there, I went and spent a year in Liberty City, which is the, uh, I worked for a unit called HUD, Housing and Urban Development. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's again, in, this, in the neighborhood called the Liberty City, did that for one year. Then I went to the SWAT team for five years. Um, that's kind of where I started teaching. And from there, I got, uh, I got promoted. I went to uh, defensive tactics. Um, I handled that for five years. I did one year in narcotics, um, got promoted out of there, was a lieutenant for the Port of Miami, then became the commander for the robbery intervention detail. Did that for another five years um, and then got promoted. Oh, I'm sorry. I went back to training where I oversaw at the training bureau. I oversaw all use of force related training in the department. Um, so my career has taken me a lot to proactive enforcement tactics and training. I'm not an investigator. I can't investigate my way out of a paper bag. Um, everything I've done has been, uh, you know, training related. So, and and I'll just shorten it later on. I, I, I got promoted to captain. I went to Northside district, went back to the training bureau. So I've done the training bureau in every rank. Those who who can't do teach, you know, that's what they say. Okay. (laughs) And so uh, after that, I went to Kendall District, and now I'm at the Warrens Bureau. Cool. Now, obviously, chatting to you, Mario, you mentioned, like, uh, off air, you were saying how you got into law enforcement, and you went straight in from finishing up in high school, uh, yes. and obviously went to the college later on while you were serving in the department. 
what what really drew you to a career within law enforcement? Uh, well, John, I saw Miami Vice. <laughs> Remember, I was a young kid. Yeah, I was a young kid living in Washington Heights, New York. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, but seriously, I had a I had an uncle who was a cop, and I saw him. Uh, I, I remember when he graduated the academy. I saw him for the first time in uniform, and um, you know, it's like they say that it's a calling. I really do believe that, and mm -hmm. uh, it's what I wanted to do ever since I was a kid. Um, nice, nice dude. And obviously, you were touching upon there a little bit about when you made the the move to the SWAT team for the five years you were there. That's when you first started getting your hand into the teaching side of things. What was it like, uh, you know, becoming an instructor? first of all, within that department, and then obviously how you've grown from there? Well, at first it was, uh, you know, it's a little intimidating. I mean, I was, uh, remember, I became a cop at 20 years old. I wasn't even old enough to have a gun. I mean, mm -hmm. my, my first gun is a Beretta 9mm that's still under my mom's name because I wasn't even old enough to have it registered under me. Wow. Um, but so as a young guy, I went to the SWAT team. I had, a, I was a really motivated uh, I'll just say a motivated student in the sense that uh, I wanted to pay for every training course that I could. Mm -hmm. And outside of the department, I started to travel. Um, I went to every MP5 instructor course and rappel master instructor course. Those were the two subjects that drew me. And there I met probably the best teacher and the biggest influence, I think, in my, in my teaching career, a guy named uh, Phil Singleton, who used to run uh, Heckler and Cock training. Um, and he was a former British SAS guy, and he was the first instructor class that I went to, and that's where I, that, that's the guy that probably uh, inspired me the most in wanting to teach. Cool. And how was that experience, you know, getting in teaching the guys, especially within the SWAT teams, as you mentioned there, being like a younger guy coming into it, and you're working with some of these veterans, you know, how was that environment to step into and teach those guys? Well, I was actually forced to do it. I, I really didn't want to do it. I, I considered myself one of the younger guys, but, um, and so for example, there's a difference between being a cadre at a school mm -hmm. and being an instructor at a school. So the cadre is the guy that yells at you, let's go 50 pushups, you know, the mean guy. And then there's the instructor that actually wants to teach you lessons and make you a better, you know, operator. And so, um, when my team leader at the time, a guy named uh, Tom Solerno came to me and said, Hey, I want you to be the rappel master for this SWAT school. I said, man, I, I'll be a, you know, I'll help out, but I don't have the experience to do that. And he said, eh, don't worry about it. You know, you, you're good at that. That's what you're good at. You're, you're, you're not going to be a cadre the first year. You're just going to teach. And he, he basically walked me through it. And, uh, and the guys were acceptable. You know, they accepted it at least. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it, went, it went fine. And then I took over the MP5 program also. And, uh, but it, it was slow. It wasn't like I just jumped in. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, the reason why I started my, my training company at the time was because the city of Hialeah here wanted to train with us. It, they, they had found out that I was the, a, a pretty good rappel master, pretty competent. And it really started out as a conversation of, hey, let's train with your team. So me being the naive officer and SWAT, the young SWAT guy, I said, ah, no problem. You'll, you can train with our team. And I came and introduced the team leader of Hialeah SWAT to the, team, you know, to the training sergeant of Miami-Dade SRT. And then I found out that due to liability purposes, uh, we weren't going to assume the liability of training with another team in case somebody else, you know, if one of their guys gets injured, mm -hmm. Miami-Dade would be assuming that liability. So when that happened, uh, we decided and he said, well, how can I pay you? Forget about Miami-Dade. I want to pay you to do it. And that's how I started the company. Um, but yeah, that, that was the beginning of training for me. Cool. 
And with that then, Mario, is, is that still something that occurs between departments? Like do departments train between each other or do you call in more so someone is a contract specialist to avoid that? Both. Uh, you know, they do both. Now I think uh, it's funny because in the 90s, which is when I got to SWAT, um, SWAT teams were still very territorial at the time. Um, okay. If I remember correctly, there were only like five or six full-time SWAT teams in the country, us being one of them. Um, and most of the other teams were part-time, meaning that they are uniform cops. And when there's, whenever there's a SWAT incident, they, you know, they go get dressed, they go into the, you know, the phone booth and turn into a SWAT guy. Um, So, but you know, that, that's changed a lot. I think everything has gotten a lot more modernized. um, And now people are, are way more welcoming to train with other people. Mm -hmm. Okay. And obviously you said about, teaching you know extensively throughout your career and working as an instructor across multiple teams and departments and stuff as well you just talk to us a little bit about you know how your approach to training you know what your current approach to training is and how that's developed over the time you've been an instructor yeah so i'll start when so for example when i was a SWAT guy um several times i was supposed to be a, a cadre and meaning that I was supposed to be one of the mean guys. And it's kind of not in my personality. Uh, I'm not saying that I can't fake it, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really what I like to do. And I, and I learned a lot from, like I said, uh, Phil Singleton, who, um, who was really a very funny and humble guy where you, w- you would learn more. And I said, man, I want to be a guy that's going to teach people, not really, you know, dog them to the ground. So I learned that um, that you get more from treating people the right way, you know, treating people nicely and, and making a fun atmosphere and, and where they're not scared to ask questions. And uh, so I picked that up early on. And then one of the other things I started realizing is that you got to break things down for the least common denominator in the class. Um, and so what I mean by that is, uh, you know, if you read like books on memory and books on learning, they always talk about the way you're going to remember something the most is to add some crazy outrageous story to it. And Mm -hmm. that'll make you remember. And so, uh, you know, in the world of tactics, you really don't have to add a crazy outrageous story. You just have to add like a real dangerous scenario. Um, so for example, if I were to ask you, Hey, um, what is the definition of a reload, right? You're reloading your weapon. Well, I mean, I'm not going to quiz you, but most people in the class, when I say, they say, well, it's a change of magazine or you're getting more bullets. And I'm like, well, yeah, that mechanically is what you're doing, but that is not the definition of a reload. I mean, the definition of a real reload means that you have already fired a bunch of bullets. You're still in a scenario where where you need more bullets because they're firing back at you and you need to put more bullets in your gun. You know what I mean? Because whatever you've fired thus far hasn't worked. And so that... totally changes the mind frame of what a reload is and it also changes the ur- the urgency in which you perform it make sense yeah yeah that definitely that makes total sense so with regards then when it comes to teaching guys and you're saying about breaking down to the common like the lowest denominator there how do you approach your training like you know for the individual elements of training so you talk there about let's say weapons handling and reloading what, what's right. your approach around that? Like, how do you break it down? How do you build on each subsequent part within right. that training cycle? Okay. So in the breaking things down, I think that, you know, this, and again, this is just my, my opinion, right? And the way my methodology is, um, there's a difference between a, br- a drill and a scenario, right? And so a drill is a set of repeatable exercises designed to ingrain a specific skill, mm-hmm. right? 
And I'm going to translate that over to say a football team. How many times does the center of a football team do nothing but snap the ball? And he does nothing but snap the ball and snap the ball and snap the ball. And so now I translate that over to firearms. And um, I think instructors should be more like coaches than instructors. So we do nothing but, for example, we'll, we'll, I'll have you draw your weapon 50 times before you fire one round. And so the interesting part about that is the more you draw your weapon, the more it becomes subconscious. In other words, I'm trying to remove all conscious thought pattern from the idea that you're drawing the weapon so that it leaves more bandwidth for you to actually respond with everything else that's going on and, and recognize the scenario. So everything, you know, everything has a purpose. But the idea is, um, you know, get them to, drawing the weapon is arguably the most important thing they'll ever do because it might be that one round, that first round that they fire might be the most important round in their life. So why don't we train that way all the time? Why mm -hmm. do we draw the weapon in a way that I say, you know, I say administratively, meaning they kind of look down, they unsnap the holster, they take it out, they wipe their forehead, they pull the gun, you know, and, and, and present the weapon in a way that they can look at the sights. Um, so I, I look at the idea of drilling it, drilling it, drilling it, and then add another element. So for example, you drill, you, you, you draw, you draw, you draw. Okay. Now let's add another little element. Um, let's dr uh, draw and take a step forward. And then you do that a couple of times. Then you draw, take a step back. Then you draw, take a step to the left. You know, the same way the center of a football team would do nothing but snap and then push forward or push to the left or push to the right. Yeah, yeah. And obviously with the, the drilling process and you're saying about layering uh, different things in there, like some small movements, do you ever start to implement any sort of external cues within there, any sort of visual or auditory yes. cues so, that you react to? Yeah, so the idea is... Um, what I like to do is I'll, I'll start to, um, you know, to add little elements, but then eventually I'll put somebody else in the mix and we'll do what, what I call an isolation exercise, mm -hmm. meaning that um, everything is scripted. I know what you're going to do. You know what I'm going to do. And we're going to exercise against each other. Yeah. Right. And so, so I don't know, for example, say that I want to do a, a, a takedown of a person and I got to grab the arm and yank them down. Well, I want them to get used to that, that yank, even though he knows that the guy is going to let him. But every time you start increasing the resistance just a little bit and get used to that. And, you know, we talked about one time uh, in, in jujitsu, um, you, you gotta, you gotta have a little bit of resistance for you to be able to, to feel your way through the technique. Yeah. You know? And so then we go from the isolation exercise where things start to build and build and build into eventually you go to a scenario where you really don't know what the, what the, uh, the role player is going to do. You're really just evaluating the student's knowledge or, or um, absorption of the exercise, right? Of the lesson. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how, how do you find at that point with the scenario stuff where you're actually starting to really push, let's say more of the tactics side of things as well. How do you find the guys uh, adapt going into that as well having that more so that free thinking after having drilled so much of it right and that's so that's the idea is to get them to respond instead of to react mm -hmm. and the more you put them in those situations you know the, you drill it then you you do the isolation exercises by the time they're in the scenario a full-fledged scenario where where they don't necessarily know what's going to happen they now have it's almost like they have more bandwidth because everything else became more subconscious 
you know, the drawing of their weapon. They're no longer looking down. But what I have found is that, and this is just kind of funny because we're, you know, uh, in the world of cops, you really have to place a leash on your role players because the most important person in a scenario is the role player. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give an example. We had a, uh, we were doing a scenario where, um, so we started a program called Fight Camp several years ago. And basically uh, what that means is in, in the state of Florida, they require you to qualify, right? Or, or show proficiency with your tools and weapons one time every two years. Um, our department for a while there, I mean, we're talking years, years ago, they adopted uh, the position where, hey, we'll do double what they require. We will qualify every single year. And that was the mentality. Well, mm -hmm. the problem with that is that there's really no training value into that uh, or, or related to that. That's really just, it's kind of like saying, congratulations, you met the minimum standard to carry a gun. Thank you. You're on your way yeah. without ever really learning anything. It's administrative, right? So you're kind of checking the box, but you're not learning anything. So we said, now nah, let's do something different. Every second year, we're going to put them through this program called Fight Camp. Uh, by the way, we called it Fight Camp amongst us, the, the, the instructors, not that we called it fight camp, okay. you know, um, it was just force on force training and it was yeah. eight hours of this. And so one of the scenarios was when the, when the officers went through, the students went through, they, they never really knew what they were going to run into. And one of the examples was after they finished with one scenario, as they're walking out to their car, they get ambushed by a guy shooting at them. Right. Well, it really didn't matter to me because all I wanted to do is prompt a response from them. Yeah. It didn't matter to me if they drew their gun and hit the bad guy or not. I really didn't care. They were using blanks, right? Um, so all I wanted the role player to do was to the moment we got the response that we wanted, which means the officer went out and he shot back. That was, the, that was exactly what we wanted to isolate. Um, well, our role player wanted to make sure that he was hitting them in the head the whole time. And I'm okay. like, wait, 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 you're missing the point. This is not an exercise for you. It's an exercise for them, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so the moral of the story is you, you really have to control your role players and know that they have a very specific job and that is to prompt a specific response from them and just, mm -hmm. you know, you sit back and evaluate uh, their interpretation of what just happened. That's cool. And like, as you say there, like going from rather than just saying, okay, every two years we're going to do a qualification assessment as such you know we're going to actually put that work in on every second year just make sure you get used to like a, a whole range of scenarios and stuff to make you a better officer you know and prepared for different uh, scenarios and stimulus on that though I, I just want to chat a little bit about mario it's just when it comes to like you know training of law enforcement um what what do you see are some of the common issues like around that like you highlight some of the stuff you guys work on which i think is really cool but what do you see as a whole, like some of the guys need to generally improve upon with regards to how they approach their uh, force on force sort of stuff? Yeah. So I think it's more, I think if you're doing it, even if you're not doing it right, mm -hmm. but you have the time and funding to do it, we're ahead of the, uh, ahead of the, you know, the game. The issue that I see, and this is nationwide because I travel a lot uh, training people and uh, it's a funding issue and it's a time issue. Yeah. So I'll, 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 I'll give you an example, you know, um, the average, and I, you know, I Googled this several years ago and I, and I looked it up recently and it still uh, lends itself to be true. And that is that, uh, an example, an NFL player trains 36 hours a week during the season, right? Now, this is not including off season or all the stuff he does on his own, but let's just say 36 hours a week average yeah. on the average player. There are 16 games per year 
And that's assuming that you're, you're like the Miami Dolphins who never makes it to the playoffs. Um, because obviously if you do, the season is longer. I'm sorry, my, my brother's going to hate me for that. But um, <laughs> the average team plays 16 games a year. Now, each game we know is a 60-minute is a game. The NFL regulated game is 60 minutes. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, between all the timeouts, commercials, the clock running, the reality is from snap to whistle, there's really only 12 minutes of gameplay. Now, we're going to break that down in a second. But so say that you're the NFL player that trained 36 hours for that week. Um, you're either offense or defense, which means if you're, you know, let's say that out of that, those 12 minutes per game, let's assume 50-50, 50 offense, 50 defense, you played six minutes in that game. Yeah. But the idea here is that the, the total average of the entire season for, for, for a for a player is 192 minutes that they're actually in the game mm-hmm. yet they're training for 2000 hours. Okay. Now, if you look at the frequency between the number of hours and, and let's not talk about the number of hours of training that they have in between games that are foreseeable, right? They know they have a game the next week and what do they have? They have the, uh, the luxury of videos of training. They study the other team. They have physical therapists, nutritionists. They have an offensive coach, a defensive coach. They have special teams coach. They have coaches for very specific things. And not only that, they get to study the other side, right? Yeah. If there's a mistake, the running back ran right by them and scored a touchdown if they made a mistake. Now, if you translate that for police, we, we work 52 weeks a year, eight hours per day, Let's give them two weeks of vacation. Uh, let's not include court time or commuting in a police car to and from work an hour per day and all that stuff. We, you know, we're talking 2,000 hours per year that these guys are actually in the game. Yeah. Trained for 16 hours that entire year. Now, and, and, and here's the thing. They're expected to do it perfectly. No mistakes, no lack of judgment. Everything has to be on the spot because you're on the news the next day. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's, that's really the limitation. Yeah, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head there as well, Mario. I mean, across the, the board, I think for first responders from the police, the fire service, that whenever you guys rock up uh, for a job, like whenever you've been called out, you know, you've got to be at your very best, even though, you know, people forget that you are human beings as well, you know. And there's always going to be like different levels to it every time. But people think like, no, the guy who's going to rock up is going to be on his game. He's going to be you know top class. And it's just it's not uh, always the case, you know. But yeah, no, it's not. It's not realistic. And um, and like I said, uh, you know, we we have to get it right, or we're we're expected to get it 100% right 100% of the time. <laughs> you know, and and when when whenever there's a budget crisis or anything else in most departments, the very first thing to go is training because it's considered a luxury. So think of that now, how that compounds the problem. Definitely. And I know from like some of the guys over here in Scotland, like from our system, like our, um, for the force on force, like self-defense sort of work, like for restraining uh, suspects, I've had the luxury of training like in jujitsu and different martial arts with guys who are in police force. And, you know, they've all taken this up off their own backs because you know, they want to have, make sure they're better prepared because in their own words, you know, some of the stuff they've learned when they went through their academy is it's okay. But practicality wise, it's just right. like, it's one, it's a one-time deal and it's not something they're staying on top of unless they are 
radically involved in, you know, jujitsu or judo or something like that. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, how true that is. Yeah. Um, think about, uh, think about your jujitsu guy. Let's, let's just talk about, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, a hip throw. Yeah. How long will it take the average or how long will it take a martial artist to learn a hip throw? So mm-hmm. one thing is to, to drill it and you do it and you do it. Then the guy has a little bit of resistance. And then now how many times or how many repetitions will it take for you to actually not only do it on a, on a person, now do it on a person that knows you're, you're trying to hurt them and is trying to get away from you. And how are you going to apply that? How many yeah. repetitions does that take? You know? And so it's a, I mean, th- that's the challenge in, in, in law, really in anything. I mean, if you want to be a good jujitsu guy, you know that you got to do that, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge everywhere. Definitely. Definitely. And obviously from the jujitsu side of things as well, it's one thing drilling it, you know, within the, uh, in the gym on the mats compared to a, a late night you know wet and windy evening where you've got to take someone down and yeah. uh, you don't know what they're carrying on them as well so completely different psychological thing as well and imagine yeah and you know what's funny about that is uh when i when i started as a sergeant in uh in defensive tactics as an instructor i was a blue belt in jiu-jitsu at the time mm-hmm. and uh and it was funny because a blue belt you know a blue belt you know is pretty good you can do okay and handle yourself okay as a blue belt and, um, but I used to roll with every single student for two minutes just to show them what it was like for a two minute roll. And it was funny cause I would get through the class. Now I'm not going to say that it has anything to do with me being 46 years old now, <laughs> but, but the reality is you look at the difference now, MMA and the UFC has become so mainstream that, uh, you know, the, the same number of students, you know, the, the demographic is the same. It's much harder now. You know, I can't go through 40 kids anymore um, because and it's not just that I'm older because that's a factor, too, but it's just that they're much better. They, you know, it's become mainstream. Everybody understands the guard, the mount, the, you know, they get it. It's just it's, it's, it's mind blowing, like how popular it's just become in that. And obviously it does have its its applications completely to like, you know, law enforcement and the military as well, who may have to employ it at certain points within their career. And I think it is good that guys are actively get involved within this just to continue to keep their skill set sharp as well yep yep definitely so i was going to say mario as well obviously you spent a lot of time in the police force and you know you've spent a lot of time as an instructor what would you say the the key lessons that you've learned over the years you know since you've been involved within teaching within the tactical field so i think uh training training should be the priority for every agency um, Mm -hmm. whether you're an officer or a police chief that should never be uh, compromised. I think um, you end up seeing the uh, the after effects of of cutting training budgets. Uh, you, you see that years down the line. Um, so that's a big issue. And then the other thing is you got to realize that not everybody does it the same. So, for example, our our team here in Miami Dade, you can you can grab us and drop us off in New York City, and the tactics that we use aren't the same. Uh, because you know environmentally it's not the same the building structures are totally different um you know the tactics that we use here um aren't necessarily going to translate to that area so i mean you got to be open i I think at the end of the day law enforcement is such a such a i don't know it's just a wide range of things you know uh, that obviously the environment affects so 
I think just stay open. I mean, that's what, that's what I do. I, every time I travel, I think I, I love teaching because I don't do it because of the money. I do it because I learn more from the students than, uh, than anything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. I have, I've always, I always say it's never, never, it's not always, always, but every single time is sometimes. Nah, and, like yeah. And, and that's how I feel about, you know, and, and training in general too. So Mario, for you then, I, I always ask everyone who comes on the show, just because I'm always interested in what people are engaging in for their own development as well. So could you just give us a quick uh, book, app, or website recommendation that you found useful either in your own education or your development? So, so it's funny you say that. I, um, I don't have anything tactical. Um, I'm on, the, I'm, on, I'm on the training advisor. I was on the training advisory board for Taser and I'm on the training advisory board now for another company called Bolo Rap. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that just being involved with those guys, they're my biggest bodyguards um, in the sense that there's a lot of people that, you know, there's a bunch of us in there. There's six of us in each group. And just hanging out with those guys, um, I learn a lot and I'm learning a lot from different regions. And that's why I say not everything that translated in one place, uh, you know, not that works in one place translates to the other. So that helps me a lot. But as far as you'll laugh when I tell you, I like creative live because I like photography. Oh, really? So, so I like the creative live app because uh, it, there's a lot of photography stuff in there. But as far as uh, tactics and stuff and development, I try to read. I've never gotten to 50 books a year. I tried to do it and I, I haven't been able to, I've gotten to 32. Um, but I'll read anything. I'll, I'll go on the uh, Amazon uh, store, on the Kindle store and I'll flow through and whatever sounds mm-hmm. interesting, I'll read. Cause you learn a little bit, you, you know, the, the analogy I gave you about the football analogy, I, I, I learned from a book that had nothing to do with teaching. They just talked about the stats. Yeah, and I said, "Wow, I, I think I might be able to apply that." And I and uh, and I have I applied that uh, that logic uh, about seven years ago to our to our lecture, mm-hmm. trying to justify or get more budgeting for training. Nice, and I mean, I I, I like uh, your points there, Mario. I completely agree. So, like one, just being around other people within the field that you can learn from. Like you know, I've been as a strength coach to numerous conferences, and as great as they are, you know, sit and listen to some world leaders um within their chosen field a lot of the big big learning for me always happens in the evening you know at the bar over a couple of beers you're chatting to guys from other departments and stuff i'm like what are you doing how are you working with your athletes and stuff and then you say about the books i would uh push back on that as well i'm probably about the same as you i'd probably get through about 30 odd books a year but for the guys who are reading 50 odd you know in a year my question always to them is if you're reading all these books how much of it are you actually absorbent or are you just skimming through to get through the books? That's what I was asked. Right, right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that I, sometimes I, I find myself reading something and, uh, and the next day I'm like, when I start reading where I, where I left the bookmark, I'm like, wait a minute, I don't remember any of this. I have to go back two or three pages. <laughs> and it's because sometimes you just mindlessly skim through it without reading. So I, I agree with you hundred percent. But you, another thing you bring up that I think is really important um, is what you mentioned, the conversations that you have with people over a beer. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've learned so much just doing that. And it's, and it's not really just beer talk. I mean, that's when people open up and that's when people, uh, you know, give you their real honest opinion about stuff. Some of the, some of the most painful conversations I've ever had were having a beer with a student and saying, you know, I didn't like the way you did this. I think you could have done that better. And I sit back and go, wow, you know, and you pick things up. 
Definitely. That's cool, mate. Yeah, definitely. 100%. And I think if you have those open, honest conversations and just at those times, it's some of the best moments for growth as well, just for yourself as an individual, but also from a practitioner standpoint as well. So yeah, 100% agree with you. Anyway, Mario, obviously I don't want to take up too much of your time, buddy. Uh, it's been great to sit down and chat with you. For anyone who's listening, if they want to you know, get in touch with you or um, find out a little bit more about you, is there any way they can do that? Yeah, so my email is mario at tacticalropesafety.com. It's all one word. And my website, it's predominantly set up for repelling stuff, but it's, uh, we do other stuff there too, but it's www.tacticalropesafety.com. That is cool. Mario, thank you very much. I'll make sure I pop them into our show notes um, and anyone can find them for looking for them as well. Mario, thank you once again, buddy, for taking the time out of your day to sit down and chat with us. It's been really informative, mate. No, no, thank you very much. Anytime. And uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, I, I, I had something to say that you liked. <laughs> no problem, Mario. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.